Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak through me, and I pray that you would help all of us to listen to you. In Jesus' name, amen. At her coronation service in Westminster Abbey in 1953, Queen Elizabeth II was handed a Bible with these words. We present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Often the most valuable things in life are among the rarest, but not so with the Bible. I tried to find out how many Bibles were sold each year, but gave up. But it would be fair to say that tens of millions of Bibles are sold and distributed every single year. The Bible is actually routinely excluded from bestseller lists for one simple reason. It would always be at the top and would blow away every other book. You know, most other books tend to be marketed in about three editions, maybe a few more, but you'll typically find there's a hardback version, there's a paperback version, or there's a digital format uh, available as well. But check out any bookstore or bookseller, and you'll soon discover that there are hundreds of different editions of the Bible out there. An article in the Times of London some years ago said, forget the modern British novelist and TV tie-ins, the Bible is the biggest selling book every year. The writer went on to say, it is wonderful, weird, or just plain baffling in this increasingly godless age, when the range of books available grows wider with every passing year, that this one book should go on selling hand over fist, month in, month out. And the writer concluded by saying, all versions of the Bible sell well all the time. Can the Bible Society offer an explanation? Well, I am told disarmingly, it is such a good book. Well, today we tackle the first question in our 10 Tough Questions series. It's all very well knowing that the Bible is such a good book and the best-selling book of all time, but how do we know the Bible is reliable? That's our question this morning. Out of some 56 questions submitted for possible inclusion in this sermon series, no less than six of them concerned the Bible. The questions ranged from, how do I know it's true, uh, to questions about the relevance of specific Old Testament passages, including a couple of questions about what we should make of the creation stories in Genesis. Well, this morning, I'm going to attempt to do three things. First, I'm going to look at the Bible's reliability. Second, I will say something about its relevance. And thirdly, I want to say something about our response. In our readings from uh, the Bible today, we heard about how important it is that we teach the Scripture to our children and our children's children. We heard that Jesus came to fulfill the law, not abolish it, and that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. But all that still begs the question, is it reliable? And in order to answer that, I think we need to start by taking a step back and ask another question. What sort of book is this? After all, when you go to the library or a bookshop, when you pick up a book and are wondering what it's about, 
it's often worth noting which section it's been catalogued under. You know, I had a quick look around my public library uh, on Friday when I was uh, preparing this sermon, and headings included mysteries, parenting, history, fiction, reference, biographies, poetry, and etc., etc. Well, the Bible isn't, of course, one book that can be neatly stacked on the religion section, for it is itself a library of books. How many? 66, good. I want to make sure you're still awake. 66 in total. And all of the categories that I just listed could probably be applied to different books or at least different passages in the Bible. Now, before any of you brand me a heretic by, because I included fiction in that list, uh, just remember Jesus often used fiction. He told stories or parables to illustrate what he was teaching. And, you know, if you read the parable of the prodigal son or the great banquet thinking it's history you'll probably miss the point or if you read the song of solomon as if it's the ten commandments you could end up in trouble if you haven't read it you can go home and read that book uh, later i think many people get themselves into difficulties with the bible because they've cataloged what they're reading in the wrong place the opening chapters of Genesis, for example, don't belong on the science shelf or the astronomy shelf. Indeed, Genesis was written in a pre-scientific era and with a non-scientific purpose. Genesis chapters uh, 1 through 3 are not seeking to answer empirical questions about exactly when or exactly how the world was made. Rather, they are addressing theological questions about who created the world and why. And if we take this seriously, I believe we discover that Genesis doesn't contradict much modern-day science and evolutionary theory. Rather, it takes us further and deeper than science can in understanding the origins of man. You know, the books of the Bible were written at different times by different authors and are clearly of very differing genres. But that still leaves open our question about how reliable all these books are. How can we be sure that a collection of documents written many centuries ago have been faithfully and correctly transmitted to us today? Well, thankfully, we don't have to have blind faith in order to answer that. You know, whenever a document is written, there's always an original from which copies are then made. And sometimes there'll be lots of copies made. Sometimes there might only be a few. And what scholars want to find out is, if we had to construct the original document from the copies, how accurate would it end up being? And clearly, the closer in time the copies that you have are to the original when that was written, and the more copies you have, the more likely it is that you'll have something that's accurate. So, by way of comparison, Plato, writing in about 380 BC. Today, there are... Do you know how many copies of Plato there are? Do you want to have a guess? What? Yeah. You're all asleep. I'm going to tell you, I can't hear. That's the problem. There's a fan blowing at me. There are seven. There are seven copies of Plato. And, and some of them are old. They date back to 900 AD. And that's about 1,300 years after 
he was writing. Okay? Uh, Aristotle, he wrote in 350 BC. Today there are five copies. Uh, they go back to 1100 AD. That's 1400 years after the original was written. The New Testament was written as early as 60 AD and another 50 years after that. Today, there are some 14,000 copies dating back to 130 AD. That's just 70 years after originally written. You know, the oldest fragment is in the John Rylands uh, Library in Manchester, England, where I used to live. And it's a piece of John's Gospel, thought to have been written in AD 96. Um, and that fragment is dated AD 125. That's just 29 years after the original was written. Now, there are very few copies of the original Old Testament writings because copies were lost, they were ceremonially buried when they were worn out, or they were, they were destroyed if there were imperfections found. And up until recently, the oldest copies dated back only to the 6th century. Well, that's a long way, 600, uh, 700 AD. But in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And the amazing thing about these scrolls is that some of them go back 800 years earlier to 200 BC. And these scrolls confirm the accuracy of those much later manuscripts that we had been using up until the 40s. The point is this. The Bible is an extremely accurate and reliable ancient text. But it's more than that. 2 Timothy 3.16 that we heard a minute ago says all scripture is inspired by God. But what does that mean? You know, we might say that a political speech is inspired. Actually, I'm not sure how many of last week's speeches we'd say that about, but uh, don't let me get sidetracked. How Christians should engage in politics is another tough question uh, in our series I'll be tackling next month. But when it comes to inspiration, we can say perhaps that a piece of music is inspired. We may be inspired by a beautiful sunset or even some tragedy to, to write a great poem. Is that what we mean when we say that the Bible is inspired? Well, of course, much of the Bible is inspiring and stirring in those other ways. But this verse in 2 Timothy means much, much more than that. The word Paul uses can also be translated God-breathed. And St. Paul wants us to understand that Scripture is the word of God spoken by God or breathed out of his mouth. And yet, we also know that God used ordinary people to actually write the Bible. God didn't write the Scriptures out longhand in pen and ink or some cosmic laser. God didn't leave the Scriptures lying around for someone to discover, as Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church, claimed regarding his golden plates. Nor do we believe that God dictated the scriptures word for word to a secretary or a scribe, as Muslims believe that Allah dictated the Quran to Muhammad in Arabic. That's why, you know, still today, there's no official translation of the Quran. For Muslims believe that the original mustn't be changed in any way at all. So if the Bible wasn't dictated... If the Bible wasn't written directly by God, and if it's not just the work of human writers, then in what sense is it inspired? 
John Stott answers this question as he speaks of the double authorship of the Bible. Scripture, he says, is equally the word of God and the words of human beings. Or better, it is the word of God through the words of human beings. We can see this in the different books of the Bible with their very different styles. God's divine inspiration used, not bypassed, the specific literary, poetic, historical skills of the human authors. Okay, well, let me turn to my second main point this morning, and that's the whole question of the Bible's relevance. You know, there are many today who believe that the Bible is merely an ancient book, merely a collection of sacred writings that you can really pick and choose from however you fancy. After all, what are we to do with the really hard passages? How can Psalms that talk about bashing the heads of babies on rocks be a good thing? And and what about all those passages about slavery and food laws? Should we just go through and cut out all the bits that we don't like, like Thomas Jefferson did? He cut out all the references in the New Testament to the supernatural because he didn't like them. Well, no, I don't think we should take our scissors to the Bible. Rather, I think we need to heed some more words from John Stott, who said this. Because Scripture is the Word of God, we should read it as we read no other book, on our knees, humbly, reverently, prayerfully, looking to the Holy Spirit for illumination. But because Scripture is also the words of human beings, we should read it as we read every other book, using our minds, thinking, pondering, reflecting, and paying close attention to its literary, historical, cultural, and linguistic characteristics. We need always to look at the context and the genre of what we're reading. You know, the bloodthirsty Psalms are not written as a prescription or law for us to follow. No, some of them are the gut-wrenching cries of a person who's being hounded by his enemies or the voice of despair in the face of injustice. They are the earthy, real, utterly relevant and up-to-date groans that come from a person who is begging God to do something. Do you ever feel that way? You know, the Bible is not a nice made-for-TV story. The Bible deals with real life, where there is death and divorce, pain and suffering, violence, betrayal, loneliness, loss. Okay, but what about the massacres that took place when God told the Israelites to destroy the Canaanites? That was prescriptive. Are we okay with that? You know, if such action was all part of God's plan, why would anyone today want anything to do with what seems like such barbarism? Indeed, that's one of the objections of the new atheists who say the stories in here, it's even worse if you think they're all true and reliable. Look at them, have you read this stuff? This is describing a God who's a moral monster. Are they right? Well, again, I wish I had more time, but let me just say two things on this. First, I acknowledge some of these passages are very difficult. I can't explain them away. I I can't pretend I like all of them. And frankly, I wish some of them weren't there. It would make my job a bit easier. But second, I think one of the reasons 
I wish they weren't there is not because I think God is a moral monster, but because they demonstrate to me that God is not a God made in our image. He is not a tame, safe God, but a God who really is a God of justice. Now, we may not like the idea of wiping out the Canaanites, though the inhumane wickedness of some of their practices beggars belief. We may not like the idea of a flood that drowns innocent women and children, except therein lies the rub. Who are we to say they are innocent? You know, we have been guilty too often of sanitizing Scripture. If you have a very old children's Bible at home, dig it out and take a look at the pictures that will accompany the story of uh, Noah's flood. They will likely be rather gruesome, as they will depict the wrath and the judgment of God against a sinful and rebellious world. But today, you're more likely to find pictures of a brightly dressed Mr. and Mrs. Noah standing next to smiling giraffes, waving cheerfully from the side of the boat. And those pictures make Noah's Ark look like a big floating animal rescue center. But that's not the point of the story at all. Well, the last point that I want to make about the Bible's relevance is this. Jesus relied upon it. He affirmed time and time again the importance and the relevance of the scriptures. He used them. He used them in the desert when he was being tempted. He used them against the people who were trying to trap him and twist his words. And remember this. All the scriptures that he was referring to were in the Old Testament. I think sometimes today we'd like to leave the Old Testament on the shelf and just focus on the New Testament as if the Old Testament isn't really relevant anymore. But that's a dangerous mistake to make. It's not possible to understand the New Testament fully unless you read it through the lens of what's gone before. You see, the story of Jesus, the teaching of how we can be saved from sin and death and hell, have all been foreshadowed and prophesied and looked forward to in the Old Testament. And without the Old Testament, we'll have an inadequate understanding of God. God is not a philosophical construct but a person who acts in history. The one who created Adam. And don't get hung up about how he did that. The God who gave a promise to Noah. The God who called Abraham. And in the Bible, we encounter the God who reveals himself, who makes himself known. Philip Yancey, in his book, The Bible Jesus Read, says this, Like a drumbeat that never stops in the pages of the Old Testament, we hear the consistent message that this world revolves around God, not us. The world, the Bible teaches us, is God's property. Now, that's a countercultural message. If you listen to what the pundits and the politicians say it's not that we're told the world around us it's all about us and it's our stuff and that's what they tell us we need this book all of it to remember who we are and whose we are 
Well, the final question I want to address this morning concerns our response. If indeed the Bible is reliable, as written and translated and passed down through the ages, and if the Bible is inspired by God and useful and relevant for us today, what is our response? You know, engaging with the scriptures demands our best efforts and a spirit of humility. And as we engage with the scriptures, we discover something that I think will help us know how to respond. Quoting Yancey uh, once again, God is not a blurry power living somewhere in the sky, not an abstraction like the Greeks proposed, not a sensual superhuman like the Romans worshipped, and definitely not the absentee watchmaker of the dais. God is personal. He enters into people's lives, messes with families, shows up in unexpected places, chooses unlikely leaders, calls people to account. Most of all, God loves. So how should we respond? We should respond personally, relationally, in the midst of our workplace, when faced with decisions at school, at home, in all of life. Respond as a lover or a child who trusts her parents. Read this great narrative of the way things really are as a love letter from God, not as a scientific textbook or a rule book to beat you up with. Respond as someone who is willing to listen more than they want to talk. Respond as one who is hungry and thirsty to receive bread from heaven, the living word, Jesus, the word made flesh. We get to know him through the pages of this book. We receive from him through the Holy Spirit as we meditate on these words. So read it. Meditate on it. And when you don't like what it says, sit with it a while. You know, in the coming weeks, we're going to tackle some really tough questions. Questions about human sexuality, about heaven and hell, about healing, about being single, other religions, politics, forgiveness, practicing our faith in the workplace. The only way we can faithfully engage with those questions, your questions, is by submitting our wills to God's will, by letting our understanding come under the authority of his word in this book. When your desires, your passions, your beliefs, your worldview clashes with what the Bible teaches us about God and his love for us, about his ways, his desires, his passions, his good, perfect, and holy will, all of which we find revealed in this book, then you and I must submit to God with meekness, trust, and deep, deep gratitude that our God cares enough about us and his world to reveal himself to us as he has. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, 
that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.